Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who is eating sugar out of my hand. Who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down. Who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? This is a poem by Mary Oliver, The Summer Day. It's a poem that more or less it lives in my, I don't know, somewhere deep. The lines uh, rise up from time to time, and maybe in a way it's a poem that changed my life. It's a poem that asked a question or put words to a question that I didn't even know I was asking, really. What is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And that's the kind of question that can make or unmake a life. That's a, that's a line from David White. And, um, and hidden right inside this poem is, is the question I want to raise today. And, and that is, what's a prayer? And what do we mean by prayer? And, and in part, I, w I was inspired uh, to do this podcast because I've been doing a series at C3 where I teach regularly called Spirituality in the 21st Century. And and I felt inspired and kind of challenged in a way to try to do something on prayer. And um, I, I felt I, I couldn't really talk about spirituality in the 21st century without roaming into this, the, the, the terrain of prayer. And it makes me uncomfortable. That's the first thing I want to say. It makes me uncomfortable. And, and my own prayer life makes me uncomfortable. And, and I want to talk a bit about that. And I want to kind of imagine together poetically and uh, I don't know, mythically and actually. <laughs> um, I want to imagine together a kind of a, a new way of, of relating to a word like prayer and maybe even a new posture toward prayer. That's where we're going. So I don't know exactly what I'll call the podcast. Uh, listening as prayer is one idea or prayer as posture. I usually name the podcast after I make it. But something along those lines, certainly something to do with listening and, and paying attention. So anyway, welcome to Hints and Guesses. This is Kent Dobson. Now you know where I'm going. And um, yeah, and I, I hope you'll hang with me to the end. At, at the very least, I'm going to be reading a couple of other poems and passages that, that have influenced me and, and challenged me along the way. And I think you'll find them, I hope you'll find them inspiring. I like the word inspiration, really, inspirited, uh, as if there's a, a fresh influx of the divine, of the spirit, of, 
of the upwelling of the great yes of the universe. Um, I want to do some ads here at the beginning, my own stuff. I got a lot of things going on. Actually, this year is going to be a big year for me. And um, I'll say more about what that means, I guess, in, in future podcasts. But um, yeah, I have some things coming up. And maybe the first thing I want to say is special thanks to my Patreon supporters who continue to support me. I really, really appreciate it. And it means a lot. And it makes this thing happen. And um, a few of you have even suggested some guests. So I've got some interesting guests coming up. I'm going to talk to Ian McKenzie who does a podcast called The Sacred Masculine and really excited about that conversation. I'm going to have that later this week and then we'll see when it comes out. So um, that's pretty cool. And uh, I have two uh, programs. Usually I call my retreats, well, I, I sometimes name the different things, but Wilderness Within is is what I often call them. And I've got two in June, one in Colorado, a very short one, just a Thursday night to a Saturday evening, a couple of hours from Denver. That information's on my website. It's going to be a, um, really rooted in some wild mind work. That's the a book by Bill Plotkin. And of course, that's where I've done my guide training and so forth. So, um, and then I'm doing another one in later, later June, which I'm calling Wilderness Within Intensive. And that's going to be, um, at the, at the end of June and a little bit longer and will involve a solo time and, and a time of uh, fasting, uh, one day fast. And of course, lots of other ceremonies and, and practices and conversation on a beautiful place here in, in Michigan near a city called Big Rapids. So, uh, and I have people coming in from outside of Michigan. So it's, if you want to make the trek, this is a really good uh, opportunity to, to get into the kind of um, sort of nature-based work that um, that I'm really into and, and I'm privileged to do from time to time. So that's coming. And uh, what else do I want to say? I think just those two things I, I want to plant. Maybe I'll plant one more seed. I'm working on a, every once in a while I'll do a, a nine-month or a year-long program with a certain theme. The last one was Iron John. That was a, a masculine uh, program um, that was online over the course of nine months. And I'm, I'm going to do another year-long intensive. And I'm, I'm just working out the details. That's going to start in in September. So look for that on my website. Anyway, kentopson.com, I'm starting to fill up with some future things. Um, I should go ahead and say I'm going to do an Israel trip next year, April 1 through 10. I know that's going to happen, assuming I get the numbers. Um I'm uh, partnering again with Denver Community Church, who I've been to Israel with a bunch of times. My buddy Michael Hidalgo is the pastor there, and so we like to work together on these things. And so that's happening, and, and usually there are some spots for um, people outside of, of of his particular church community. So I'm feeling like those are the only kind of ads I want to do right now. If something else occurs to me, I'll let you know. So let's get into into the, the, I don't know, what, what is this, into this chat. Um, like I said before, I don't think we can talk about spirituality for the 21st century without a conversation about prayer. And, and personally, prayer has always given me trouble. And, and if, 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 for example, if you ask me to pray in public, I have like a kind of a freak out. 
like even uh, I'm getting better about it, but I can still feel it rising up. It's like a, a knot in my throat and I don't want to say anything and I try to avoid it. I try to get out of it. I don't like praying in public. And even when I was a pastor, this is kind of funny, um, you know, the kind of thing, the, uh, the vibe you could even say that the kind of flow, that's probably a better way of saying it, of, of an ordinary service, you know, it kind of feels informal because I'm sort of an informal um, teacher and, and Marcel was kind of an inf- informal place. But after a while, you know, all that informality becomes the way things should be. And, and at the end of the talk, it was like, okay, how do you close a service? And the, the go-to was prayer. And I would most of the time try to avoid that, which means sometimes I'd end in kind of an awkward way, or I was really resistant to, you know, <laughs> if you're a churchgoer, you know what I mean. It's like sometimes the pastor prays and he like gives a summary or she gives a summary of uh, the talk. Like, here are my main points in case you missed the last 40 minutes. I, and I really didn't like that. It just made me uncomfortable. And sometimes I'd even think of Jesus. There might be good reasons for this. I think there probably, this would be a positive way of thinking about it, even though I think most of mine are more like hangups. You know, but Jesus says, hey, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. You know, pray to your father in secret here. And don't be like the Pharisees says, who stand up and want to be heard by their many words. You know, so... Yeah, public prayer that it should um, it should bother us at least a little bit. I think when somebody can do it authentically and genuinely, you can really feel it. You say, "Ah, oh, there, there it is. This isn't for show, or this isn't a, a summary of the talk, or or a chance to espouse some theology, which is another version of public prayer." But um, anyway, I'm just giving you a, a kind of behind the scenes of my own discomfort, and my it it kind of goes way back. <clears throat> because I, I grew up in a pretty religious house and a pretty religious environment, independent Baptist and in Virginia, and, and we were, you know, people, adults were talking about prayer all the time, and that prayer works, and you got to do it, and if you have enough faith, you can move mountains. And I remember even as a little kid, I think I put, I maybe put this little passage in, in Bitten by a Camel, my book, but I, I used to pray that for God to just turn the lights out in church just for a second, just to prove to me, you know, I mean, I'm talking when I was really little that that God actually exists and that and that prayer works and 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 sometimes I would, you know, I would be disappointed because it wouldn't happen or I would think something like, well, maybe it happened when I blinked and I just missed it, you know. So, you know, the idea that there's a deity up there, a God who answers the prayer of the of righteous people is kind of encouraging and deeply troubling at the same time. And I think for me, when I started to, you know, to question, I don't know if, if I would call it the efficacy, maybe that's the right way to say it, the efficacy of prayer, like that was a, that was the beginning of some deep doubts that I, I had and, and kind of like my view of God was sort of like a vending machine God. You plug in the right change and out comes the, you know, the product, um, and, and if, if you don't get the, your prayer answered, that's probably your fault. You know, you don't have enough faith or belief or, you know, there was some sin in your life. And that's the way it was often talked about. And, and then there was this formula that we were encouraged to use. And I think there's a lot, of, actually a lot of truth in the formula that the older I get, the less even resistance I have to, to some of my fundamentalist roots 
I mean, I, I disagree, I, I suppose, uh, on a number of things, but I just mean my, my overall demeanor is less hostile. But I, I remember, I, I can't remember the exact order, but it was something like, hey, when you go to pray, you first you have to confess your sins, or maybe you start off with praise, like you praise God, and then you have to confess your sins. Um, and then thank him for forgiving your sins. So some thanksgiving. And then at the very end, you can throw in your requests. You know, it's kind of like if you follow the order here, then you can get around asking, you know, God for what you want. And, and it made me uncomfortable. And, and then I think as, as I just started to grow up and even my, my exposure to other expressions of, of faith even other expressions of Christianity started to push on these things. And I, I found myself trying a whole bunch of different things, like more formal prayers, like praying the Psalms. That became a thing for me for a while. And when I was in Israel, I got this little book from the Franciscan bookstore called The, the Hours of St. Francis. And I would try them. I'd try the hours. I mean, I think there are seven hours or something like that. Not that I was a monk, but I tried, you know. I'm going to just follow. Like, I, I don't know what to say. That was my my feeling. I don't know what to say, so I'm just going to say what has worked for a thousand years, you know, or in the case of the Psalms, for 3,000 years. And and I found some comfort in having to not think, which is interesting. Um, and later on, I tried, I tried, I got really into Merton, and I bought a book, uh, The Hours of, according to Merton. Now, Merton didn't actually write The Hours, but somebody sort of collected a some of his writings and thoughts and and poems really and and put them in into the hours and if you if you don't know what the hours are it's like the the hours of the day um you know pre-dawn and then dawn and you know midday and you know evening prayers and dusk and midnight and you know i don't remember them all but a way of ordering your life and actually what what i found though i was pretty inconsistent but what i found sort of powerful is that keeping the hours sort of arrested my mainstream, well, mainstream thought, mainstream consciousness, or even my habits. That's probably the best way to say it, my habits. How would I ordinarily go through the day? Well, I was being interrupted seven times a day. And sometimes I wonder if, if that's not one of the gifts of, of, of a prayer life or a meditation life. And, and of course, during this time period, I found contemplative prayer through the Dominican Center here in Grand Rapids and the practice of Lexio Divina, divine reading and, and silent prayer. And, and I was listening to Thomas Keating and, and of course, Richard Rohr talks a, a bit about contemplative prayer too, and trying a meditation practice. I kind of suck at meditation. And um, even that sort of morphed into to wander in the woods, you know, and, and sometimes just to nothing, you know. Sometimes I wanted to say, well, prayer is just life. and But for me, although I think there's a a truth in that. I want to actually quote something from Thomas Merton in a second, but um, yeah, okay, your life is prayer, and maybe prayer is just living, and um, or you can live in a prayerful way. And but for me, I guess it was a kind of way of just pushing it away. Like I, I didn't want to think too carefully about it. And now I'm a little more relaxed, and I do, I randomly pray. I randomly pray pray the Lord's Prayer. I was on a um, just last. This last year, I was apprenticing as a guide on the year-long program at Animus, and right the third session is a vision fast, and you know all the participants went out, and then the guides sort of stay in camp, and I did a sort of half fast. I fasted for a day, and I don't know why. I was just on wanders, and I found myself praying the Lord's Prayer, something I haven't prayed in 
a long time. And it's almost like there was no reason for it and also every reason for it. And um, I was hearing it differently. It was affecting me differently. And even though I ask, to whom am I speaking, you know? And as the sort of the question of God plagues me, um, that, that too is a kind of expression of prayer. But I would like to make a claim here that there is something sacred about finding or recovering or remembering a prayer life. And it's also very intimate. I, as you probably know, I, I work with people in one-on-one um, sessions, which I call companion guiding and kind of mentoring sessions. And, and you know, most of my, my training has come through animus in this kind of realm uh, and also as a pastor. But um, one of the more intimate things you can even ask someone is, do you have a prayer life? And what does that look like? And, and actually, the, there's, a, there's a deep intimacy when someone says no, as much as when someone says yes and tries to describe it. And um, it's, it's laying bare. There's, a, there's something about prayer that's just laying bare what's true on the heart and, and soul level and, and a kind of simplicity to it. Like I was thinking about Anne Lamott's book, she says you only need three prayers. I don't remember the order, but something like wow, thanks, and help. You know, yeah, that, that is, there's something profoundly simple and, and bottomless about, about that wow, and thanks, and help. And, and also, I mean, prayer has been a part of every spiritual path and every religion that we know of, and East and West. We can lump them all, and they all have expressions of what we might call prayer, and um, and so there's something deeply personal and, and important about it. And, and another sort of claim I'd like to make, uh, in addition to there's something sacred about finding prayer life, is that I think that prayer is something like a posture. Uh, almost a, a way, a stance one might take in the world. You could say a way of being, but an intentional way of being. Or a way of being in relationship. That's the way I think of prayer. It's a way of being in relationship with what's real, or reality with a capital R, with mystery. And that stance, I think, um, I think cultivating that stance is part of just cultivating a spiritual life. And um, and then there's something very ordinary about that. My my favorite Merton line about prayer is this one. He says, "What I wear is pants." What I do is live. How I pray is breathe. You know, and but what I I love what I love about this line is this is coming from a Cistercian who wears robes, who has set prayers, and and it's and and a vow of silence, and in that realm, in that shaping container, he. I don't know. There's a kind of like utter simplicity here. What I wear is pants. What I do is live, and how I pray is breathe you know i'd love to be able to to speak like this when someone says hey what do you do well what i do is live <laughs> you know um so yeah i guess what i'm saying is personally i've come to think of prayer as primarily a posture we can take in the world or a stance and maybe another way of saying is how can i live humbly before what i don't understand i think if if you haven't been confronted by mystery, by the mysteries, 
and been humbled in a way. And in, in what you do not understand, I mean, there's not much of a reason for a prayer life. But when you have, when you've tasted the, the smallness of the, the dust particle that you are, that I am, and tasted something larger, it's like, okay, how can I live humbly before this reality? And, and prayer is the ancient um, language, you could say, of that kind of humble posture. At least that's the way I'm, I'm beginning to think about it. You know, to use traditional language, you could say, how do I stand or kneel before what I don't understand? Like T.S. Eliot's great line, kneel, kneel where prayer has been valid. This line has always bothered me. Kneel where prayer has been valid. I'm like, what do you mean? You know, I think this is in the four quartets. and Kneel where prayer has been valid. And, and that, that, that means some openness to the ancestors, to tradition, to the to how our spiritual fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers have, the way they've taken a, a prayerful stance in the world, the way they've stood humbly before the way things are, before reality. Um, yeah, that's a kind of valid prayer life I'd like to, to find, you know, to kneel, to kneel where prayer has been valid. But, um, and this brings me right back to the Mary Oliver line. I do not know exactly what a prayer is, but I do know how to pay attention. I know how to kneel in the grass. And, and that's, if, if I can be as honest as I can, that's, I can feel my resistance. I, I do not want to kneel a lot of the time. I do not want to kneel. I want to make claim, claims and, and, um, carve out a niche for myself. Here is what I know. And, and Mary Oliver seems to be saying, if we can just learn to pay attention, if we can listen, if listening, deep listening, is the most honest kind of prayer we can have, in other words, paying attention, it will bring us to our knees. And anything can bring us to our knees, like a grasshopper. I heard Mary Oliver talking about this poem one time, and she said, um, about that line, eating sugar out of my hands. She said, I was holding a piece of cake, you know. I don't know, I just love that. I don't know why she didn't say it in the poem, but um, yeah, just, just seeing a grasshopper with their enormous and complicated eyes and their jaw moving back and forth instead of up and down and thoroughly washing their face and the black bear and the half moon that I saw today and I have 12 chickens and the way they shake out sometimes in the morning in the sun, it's just like, who made the world, you know? And, and that kind of paying attention can bring us to our knees. And that's the kind of valid prayer that I long for and in a way want, want to learn to surrender to. So um, I think what I'd like to do in, sort of in, the, in the rest of this little uh, musing is talk about three kinds of listening that have been helping me. And the first is listening to your life. The second is listening to the world. And the third is listening to other. I've, I've capitalized other in my mind. <laughs> I've capitalized it. Um, listening to your life, listening to the world, listening to other, to any other, really. Maybe all of the above is a way of listening to other. But I think, for me, the beginning of a, 
of a more honest and I and I hope I was going to say more mature prayer life, but I I don't know if I I certainly don't have a mature prayer life, but I would say when I started dropping my kind of combative stance against language like prayer or prayers or even though I can still fear the, the resistance when I, I just started to loosen my, my grasp a little bit, um, came in part because I felt utterly compelled as if it was a matter of life and death to listen to my own life. Like, no, really, who am I? What am I doing? What are my own habits and patterns? What are my hopes and longings and desires and fears? And, um, you know, even before I had language like subpersonalities and complexes and, but like my, my hangups, my issues, my stuff, like what is my own life telling back to me? Why do I keep bumping into the same kinds of scenarios? Why, why does it seem like I, I, it's almost as if I create, um, similar circumstances and I keep having similar encounters with, with people and what is my own life reflecting back to me? What is it mirroring back to me? And to pay attention, like the way one to, would to a grasshopper to your own life. I mean, of course, you know, just to, as a caveat here, I'm not talking about navel gazing here. Like everything goes inward and it's all about me and my spiritual journey and my ideas and my feelings. And But I mean a, a more um, humble uh, confrontation with your own habits and patterns. Uh, one of the questions that that I was asking before I ever heard this line, I was asking even though I didn't have the words for it, is a line from from Carl Jung, and, and I think this is in his Memories, Dreams, and Reflections in his memoir. And he says, uh, the compelling question for me is, what is the myth of my life? What is the myth of my life? And now you might not resonate with that question, that went all the way in for me, like straight to the heart. I was like, yeah, that's what I've been asking. What is the myth of my life? Of course, I love myths. And, and it's a way of saying, what is the deep structure of the story of my own life? What story is trying to live through me? It's not even mine exactly. But it's a kind of, a kind of storyline, an arc, a pattern that is emerging in my life. And the only way to find out, if there is even a way of finding out what is the myth of my life, is to start paying attention, is to listen. So prayer as listening to, to one's own life. And, and I guess related to this is something I got from Michael Mead. And I think I've even mentioned this on this podcast before. And he says, um, you know, the, in, in Greek thought, fate and destiny hold hands. And fate, fate are the things that we can't do anything about. It's like the family you're born into, the skin color you have, the zip code, the economic status that you're, you know, you were born into, um, and of course your family history and all, and all that, you had no say in any of that. That's fate. And, but destiny is what happens when the pressures of fate start cooking us. You know, it's like all, all the, the circumstances that we really can't do anything about, like an illness that just for no reason, it's, it seems random, you know, comes into your life like fate, you know, hold that loosely. Cause I know people use the word fate differently. I, I don't mean it in a causal way. I just mean like, yeah, you know, this stuff we don't have much of a say in. But those things are like a pressure cooker, like a cauldron, and, and it creates heat and pressure so that we might discover our destiny, our, our true shape, our true 
stance or place in the world or, or our truest stance or place in the world. And, and, you, and you've met people. I know I have. I'm sure you have too who, who yeah, the circumstances of life uh, are, I don't know, challenging or, or the suffering is there and yet somehow they're, they're holding onto a thread and that thread of destiny and they're living into their fullness in spite of and because of the, the cauldron of circumstances that they've been cooking in. And at least Michael Mead would say, um, I think he would say, that ah, this is the way it should be. This is the way it is. And, and it requires a certain amount of listening to your life. You know, a simple way of saying it, a kind of a, you know, pop psychology way is what are the patterns that keep showing up? And it takes a lot of discipline and time and question and conversation. Sometimes you need help to even discover the patterns that keep showing up. A lot of times you can't see it. I can't see it. But it, at least what I'm suggesting now is that to turn your ear toward your own patterns is a form of prayer because it's a form of listening. And here's another question, like, uh, what do I not see about my own life? And, you know, there's a lot of, like, uh, stuff floating around about shadow, and it's a Jungian term, and, and all kinds of workshops around shadow. And I've talked about shadow on this, on this podcast before, and sometimes we do shadow work in animus, and sometimes I'll do it in one-on-one -on -one work, and, and people mean wildly different things by shadow, but shadow in its most simple terms is what we don't know. That's not what a lot of people mean when they say shadow. They mean unsavory things that have been repressed. And, but I mean, really, what do you not know about yourself? What, do you, what, can you, what are you completely blind to? And even to ask such a question is to take a prayerful posture. I might not know. My ego might be filled with illusions and delusions. What do I not know? And... I mean, it's a brave thing to ask your partner or your best friend, what do I not know about myself? You know, and not that that's exactly the same thing as doing shadow work, quote, but I mean, that requires a posture, a, a posture of prayer, of listening. And maybe one more along these lines about listening to your own life. And what are the pains or wounds or questions that I'm carrying from my own family, from my own ancestors, if you want to extend it out from there? the pains and wounds and even conclusions and ways of operating that I've inherited. And, and I don't know exactly how that works. I mean, there's the field of epigenetics, of course, but um, like what, sometimes I wonder why does the question of God, and that's the way I would put it, the question of God, why is it always bothering me? Why will it not go away? Like, can't I just be into something else? Why the mystery of God plagues me. Well, maybe it's not so personal. You know, my grandfather on my mother's side was, an, was, a, was a minister and actually here in Michigan, she's also, also Irish down the, down the road there. And my dad's uh, Irish, I'll get to that in a second, but um, was a preacher and, you know, made a living in these kind of tent revivals, preaching against the, the dangers of alcohol. And, and sure enough, he was driven out of Michigan because he was, and you guessed it, an alcoholic, you know, like, huh. And then, my, you know, my dad was a pastor and my grandfather, his dad was a pastor. And, um, and I come from this little island where there has been a centuries-old conflict between Protestants and Catholics, between, um, you, know, 
I could go way back to stone circles and nature mysticism and Christianity, you know, like, okay, the question of God is, is one of the questions that I've inherited. And maybe there's such thing as a kind of spiritual DNA. Maybe spiritual DNA is the same thing as DNA. And okay, so not so personal, like, okay, well, so what would it look like to listen to these pains and wounds and questions that have come to me that have been part of my own inheritance and um, maybe it's just the right kind of thing maybe it's just what I need and the world needs for me to uh, humbly accept the I don't know the, the questions of my own life and after all I put this line in 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 bitten by a camel I got it from Paula de, de Arce and she says God comes to us disguised as our life so now you can see why I'm saying prayer as listening, prayer as posture. And if you listen to your own life, you're listening to God. If we take this line seriously, God comes to us disguised as our life. Okay, and so let's just turn the soil here. And I want to talk about listening to the world. And listening to your life is one thing, but listening to the world. And and here's a, a line from, from Bill Plotkin. He says, um, we are who we are in relationship to everything else. We are who we are in relationship to everything else. So the reality is a web of interconnected relationships, something like that. And, and if that's the case, when, when we listen to the world, it's like thumbing the, the web itself, the the interwoven web of connections that is reality itself that makes us who we are and and to keep these sort of lines or or webs or um, uh, mysterious translucent threads to, to keep those channels open between myself and the world is is to I think deepen a kind of prayer life and and so what does it mean to listen to the world? Well, in part, it means what Mary Oliver is talking about, paying attention and, and, and a kind of a, a cultivation of a life that's sensitive to relationships. And as soon as you say relationships, you start to go in the human realm, but sometimes that's, that's the hardest place. <laughs> it's like, uh, I've said this before, but I, I got it from Eckhart Tolle. Um, I heard him say on a podcast, I think he was quoting someone, but he said, if you think you're enlightened, go spend a week with your family, you know? So it's like, yeah, all right. Yeah. There, that's Easter, you know, <laughs> whatever, any other holiday taken down about 75 pegs from, at least for me, from my, you know, pseudo enlightened, you know, conscious awareness place of soulful engagement in the world, you know? Yeah, right. So sometimes it's harder in the, in the, in the web in the web of family relationships. And maybe that's not even the best place to start. And at least for me, a big part of my own spirituality in the last few years has been deepening my relationship with nature and with the natural world and listening to the natural world. And, um, you know, sometimes at, at Animus, we have this practice that we call talking across the species boundaries. And um, yeah, and it's exactly what it sounds like, going out into the wild world and engaging in conversation. And conversation is both both speaking and and moving in the world and in a way and but but maybe more importantly a, a kind of deep listening of being in relationship with with 
the world itself and, and the individual mystery, or we could say interconnected mystery of any kind of being at all, like a creek and a tree and a, a flower or a borrego or a hummingbird or a purple bee or, um, you know, a choya um, or a black walnut or whatever. It's like the world is that alive and, and, and yeah, I just thought of something um, from Russell Brand. He says, we're wired for connection. I don't particularly like the, the computer metaphor, but if, if he's right and we're wire, wired for connection, um, it means the threads of our own being are actually connected to everything else. And to open up those channels of connection is to find a deeper kind of belonging. And that, and that requires listening to the world and wandering in the world with that kind of open posture. And, and let me read a, a Wendell Berry poem to kind of just bring out the poetic side of this. I go among trees and sit still, he says. I go among trees and sit still. All my stirrings become quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my sight. I don't know if this has ever happened to you where you're still enough in the woods. I remember when I was, um, yeah, 14 or something, I was hunting in the woods and a little chickadee came and landed on the barrel of my 410. Like what a, what a wild world, a, a subtle world, a mysterious world. And what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my sight. What it fears in me leaves me and the fear of me leaves it. It sings and I hear its song. I think this is part of the invitation I'm, I'm trying to express here when it comes to listening to the world. It sings and I hear its song. I don't know if you've ever heard that story of the anthropologists um, in, in, in Africa. I forget the name of the tribe, but they were, um, you know, studying them. This is in the 1900s during the, you know, great, maybe 1800s explosion of of anthropology and investigation of tribal cultures and so forth and they were outside at night and the and the men were asking the anthropologist what they thought of the song of the stars and he's like they're like what are you talking about and like, can't you hear it you know can't you hear it and the answer of course was no we, we don't hear the stars and they were floored that they couldn't hear the song so what is that about it sings and I hear its song then what I'm afraid of comes and I live for a while in its sight. Interesting, like it sings and I hear its song. Then what I'm afraid of comes and I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it and the fear of it leaves me. It sings and I hear its song. After days of labor, mute in my consternations, I hear my song at last and I sing it. As we sing, the day turns, the trees move. He's saying the kind of deep listening that's possible when we can hear the song of the world, of the earth, of the beings of the earth, 
of the ocean and the tide and the moon and the mountains and the grasses and the fields and the dawn, if we're still enough, we get a taste of our own song. And when we sing, then we're joining the song of creation and and it becomes our song. And, and we're taking our rightful place as in the chorus of being, in the chorus of the earth, in the chorus of, of the world coming into being and in every moment. And that's the kind of, and talk about a prayer. I mean, talk about singing your song, like, like the Psalms say, the, the rocks cry out, you know, and the, and the trees sing the praises of God and just by being themselves and, and we too can be ourselves. And, and in doing so, we're joining a kind of chorus. And I think what Wendell Berry is saying, what I'm trying to say is that, okay, a kind of deep listening, we're invited into a kind of deep listening, a kind of prayer um, of deep listening to the world in order to hear the song of the world and, and in turn discover our own song, something like that. And maybe related, I want to say something about listening to other. Um, you know, like, you know that feeling when you're saying something and you, you know you're not being heard? You know, you're not, you're not being understood, you're not being heard, and it's like you can tell, not that, <laughs> no, I've never done this, of course, but you can tell that the person is just waiting for a pause to interject whatever, their thoughts, feelings, ideas, ideology. It's not really listening, and, and how, like, sort of quietly painful that is. That's the way I experience, like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not being heard, and and how common is that, really? We just think about public rhetoric. This is one of the problems I have with Twitter. It's like uh, there's very little listening going on. It's just a shouting match. And, you know, our public discourse has become tainted with, with you know, just talking heads that have no interest in understanding the other. And so you know what I'm talking about, and, and you probably also know the feeling of when you're actually heard. You're like, oh, and, and when someone actually hears you, sometimes what they're hearing is not the words, but they're hearing what's behind the words, and, and you feel heard, and, and how deeply intimate that is. And, and, and you can become that kind of person. And what if prayer, what if a dimension of prayer as posture, prayer as listening is, is just learning how to listen to another person, to any other, to really listen. I mean, what if, this is like a challenge I, I guess I have for myself right now. It's like, what if the next time I'm in a conversation, my goal was to understand what the other person is saying, not to get to the point where I get to say what I want to say about it. I mean, that's like, it sounds silly to have to, to say that as a kind of goal, but see, I think that's the kind of listening that that is needed and necessary and that is ancient and possible and important and can heal the interpersonal wounds that we're all carrying and maybe even heal the world and heal the nations, you know, to quote Revelation. So what would listening to other look like? Well, it might 
look like listening without story or category? Here's a line from, um, here's some advice from Jung. Jung is writing to some uh, psychotherapist. Um, and he says, uh, don't forget the person in front of you is a profound mystery and not a statistic. See, in our statistic-obsessed culture, in our statistic-obsessed spiritual culture, for that matter, everybody's a category, uh, an INTJ, um, uh, eight on the Enneagram, a, you know, whatever. I, I, I don't, I'm not even picking on these things really too much. They have their place, but that's what we love to do. I mean, one of the great sicknesses of Enneagram culture is the way it's used to label and categorize other people when it's profoundly and deeply a way of doing inner examination. But that's not the way it's heard most of the time. It's like, who do I get to label? And that's not listening. That's listening in order to categorize. That's listening through a lens of a rubric and checking boxes and then deciding that you know what the mystery of another human being, what they're really up to and what their motivations are. That is downright dangerous and sad. So let's stop. Like, can we practice? Here's a prayerful form of, of, of listening. Can we practice without story, without category? It's not like those... Um, never have a place, but they only just come alongside and say, hey, it's kind of like this. Here's another way of putting it. Maybe it's possible to, to listen for the truth behind the words. I think about this in the political sphere. There are all these phrases, and we're always fighting about slogans right now. It's like, a let's just put a slogan on a sign and head to the streets and and very rarely are we ever asking, what are the fears, motivations, longings, and desires behind any given phrase? Even the ones that you might hate, you know, like I hate the people who chant this fill in the blank. And yeah, well, is it possible to listen for the truth behind the words? Because, you know, to quote Ken Wilber, um, everybody's right, you know, Nobody's smart enough to be 100% wrong, so what truth is, is hidden here? And the only way to get close to that is to listen and to, to deeply listen. And here's another thing that happens when we, when we listen. What if we thought about listening as an act of diminishment? I, I, I love this phrase, an act of diminishment. Instead of I'm in conversation with, with another person, or even you could say, I wonder if we can broaden it out with an idea, you know, with an ideology, with a, with a perspective here. Um, but I want to listen in a way, in, in, instead of a, looking for opportunities to build myself up, which I think that, that's what a lot of conversation is like, but I'm going to listen as an act of diminishment. Um, this far I shall come, but no further. You know, that's what Yahweh says to the sea in, in the book of Job. This far you shall come, but no further. And that's an act of diminishment. And, and yeah, it's, what if I didn't need to protect or defend, but um, uh, just allow my, some diminishment to happen. And if that's going to happen, I think, if we can learn to listen and Here's another way of thinking about listening and listening to others, listening as a process of maturation. Like, sometimes I think 
like I, I try to think about what what's the work I'm trying to do in the world, like my own work and also this podcast and my work in Animus, my retreats and programs and um, my teachings at C3 and so forth. Well, I'm hoping that it's a, I'm hoping to be in conversation with maturing, you know, spiritually and, uh, you know, psychologically as well. But I guess I mean more spiritually as a process of maturation, but um, there's no way we can mature without listening. I mean, it's just like, think about a marriage or a partnership, you know, there's absolutely no way of, of, of the relationship maturing without a kind of deep and profound listening. Who is this mystery before me? I've been married for almost 25 years and I still look at my wife sometimes and I can feel like, whoa, like the person here in my presence is a, is a total mystery to me. And that's true of everyone we meet. And I think the more intimate the relationship is, the more mysterious the other becomes. And there's no way we can get close to that without, um, without listening and without saying the only way I'm going to mature is to listen, something like that. Maybe the simple way of saying it is that listening is a posture we take. And that posture is a prayerful one. So listening is posture, and, and posture is a kind of prayer. And um, Yeah. And I can hear that in, in, in the Wendell Berry poem that I read about listening and, and then joining the symphony, joining the song, the song of creation, the co-created, incarnated, reality of the divine mystery making itself known in the world and um, and I think to be in the, that kind of song and that kind of symphony requires the sort of listening posture I'm hinting and guessing about so I want to end with a, a Thomas Merton passage probably one of my all-time favorites you know, top 10, top 10 Thomas Merton lines, passages. For the world and time are the dance of the Lord in emptiness. For the world and time, for the world and time are the dance of the Lord in emptiness. In nada and nothing in the void and the vast expanse of the great void. For the world and time are the dance of the Lord in emptiness. The silence of the spheres is the music of a wedding feast. The silence of the spheres is the music of a wedding feast. The more we persist in misunderstanding the phenomena of life, the more we analyze them out into strange finalities. It's almost what, like, it's the full-time job of the ego here especially like a sophisticated, educated, supposedly ego-like mind, you know, analyzing things out into strange finalities. The more we persist in misunderstanding the phenomena of life, the more we analyze them out into strange finalities and complex purposes of our own, the more we involve ourselves in sadness, absurdity, and despair. And is that not life in the 21st century? 
strange finalities, complex purposes of our own, and in the end we involve ourselves in sadness, absurdity, and despair. But it doesn't matter much, he says, but it doesn't matter all that much. No despair of ours can alter the reality of things, the true reality of things. No despair of ours can alter the reality of things or stain the joy of the cosmic dance, which is always there. And I think about Wendell Berry falling silent in the woods and the song and the dance of the cosmos coming into awareness, listening that deeply and that simply. No despair of ours can alter the reality of things or stain the joy of the cosmic dance, which is always there. Indeed, we are in the midst of it, and, in the, and it's in the midst of us. Indeed, we are in the midst of it, and it is in the midst of us, for it beats in our very blood whether we want it to or not. It's like we are who we are in relationship to everything else. We are who we are in as much as our deep embeddedness in the reality of things, in the cosmic dance, in the Lord, in the cosmic dance of the Lord, in emptiness, in the song of the wedding feast. We're in the midst of it, and it's in the midst of us, and it beats in our very blood, whether we want it to or not, whether we scream and curse the universe and God, or we fall silent, it beats in our very blood, he's saying. Yet the fact remains that we are invited Here's the line that, you know, I can, it, it, I can feel my own tears, you know, coming here. Yet the fact remains that we are invited to forget ourselves on purpose. <laughs> oh, the, yet the fact remains we are invited to forget ourselves on purpose. Forget about yourself, you know. That, that's actually what listening is. Forget about yourself for a minute. Maybe that's what prayer is. Yet the fact remains that we are invited to forget ourselves on purpose, cast our awful solemnity to the winds, and join the general dance. Cast our awful solemnity to the winds and join the general dance. Friends and brothers and sisters, that's my prayer right now for you, for me, for your kids, for your strained family relationships, for your work environment, for the political nastiness of our I don't know, cultural climate. Cast our awful solemnity to the winds and join the general dance. That's my hope that if we can learn to cultivate this kind of listening, prayerful life, we'll not get answers, but we'll find ourselves joining in the symphony and in the dance, uh, in the swirl of the dance of emptiness. Thanks for listening.